Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Overeaters Anonymous, a vision for you big book study. My name is Janice PM, and I'm a grateful, recovered, compulsive overeater. Today's Tuesday. It's January 30th. It's 2018. And uh, today we're reading from the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, Chapter 2, There is a Solution. And today we'll be reading and commenting on page 21, starting with paragraph 2, and ending on page 22, paragraph 1. Now, our readers today for the 12 steps will be Carol H., the 12 traditions, Reggie O., and the readers of our text will be Elaine T., Cynthia Y., and Stephanie L. Now, I have two share IDs for you if you want to call in. It's for one is for Monday, that's January 29th. The 10 a.m. meeting is 10,979. That's 10979. And this morning, Tuesday, January 30th, our 7 a.m. Eastern Time meeting uh, is 10,982. That's 10982. And our OA preamble. OA is Anonymous is a fellowship of individuals who through shared experience, strength, and hope are recovering from compulsive overeating. We welcome everyone who wants to stop eating compulsively. There are no dues or fees for members. We are self-supporting through our own contributions, neither soliciting nor accepting outside donations. OA is not affiliated with any public or private organization, political movement, ideology, or religious doctrine. We take no position on outside issues. Our primary purpose is to abstain from compulsive eating and compulsive food behaviors and to carry the message of recovery through the 12 steps of OA to those who still suffer. OA's fifth tradition states, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. At A Vision for You Big Book Study, our message is that people who suffer from compulsive overeating can recover through abstinence and the practice of the 12 steps and 12 traditions of Overeaters Anonymous. I will now ask Carol H. to please read OA's 12 steps. Good morning, Janet. This is Carol H., recovered compulsive eater in Colorado. These are the 12 steps. One, we admitted we were powerless over food, that our lives had become unmanageable. Two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Six, were entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Seven, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Ten, continued to take personal inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. 
11, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. 12, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to compulsive overeaters and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Well, thank you so much, Carol H. Now I will ask Reggie O. to please read the 12 Traditions. Hi, and thank you. This is Reggie O. Gratefully recovered in the Los Angeles area, and these are the 12 Traditions of Overeaters Anonymous. One, our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends upon OA unity. Two, for our group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, a loving God, as he may express himself in our group conscience. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. Three, the only requirement for OA membership is a desire to stop eating compulsively. Four, each group should be autonomous except in matters affecting other groups or OA as a whole. Five, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive eater who still suffers. Six, an OA group ought never endorse, finance, or lend the OA name to any related facility or outside enterprise, lest problems of money, prosperity, and prestige divert us from our primary purpose. Seven, every OA group ought to be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions. Eight, Overeaters Anonymous should remain forever non-professional, but our service centers may employ special workers. Nine, OA as such ought never be organized, but we may create service boards or committees directly responsible to those they serve. Ten, Overeaters Anonymous has no opinion on outside issues, hence the OA name ought never be drawn into public controversy. Eleven, our public relations policy is based on attraction rather than promotion. We need only maintain, we need always maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, and film. And twelve, anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all our traditions, ever reminding us to place principles before personality. And thank you. Grateful to be able to be of service this morning. And thank you so much, Reggie O. How our meeting works. Our meeting focuses on the directions for recovery described in the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. We read a paragraph or two from the literature, then stop and share on what was read. Anyone can share, but we ask that you keep your sharing to the topic and literature we are discussing, and that you keep your share to approximately three minutes. Singleness of purpose reminds us to identify as compulsive overeaters only. Our abstinence requirement for moderators is one year and for readers is six months. There is no abstinence requirement for sharing on topic. This meeting does request that your sharing be directly linked to what was read. We are sharing what the directions in the big book mean to us. Now to share, press star one to unmute. And once you're done sharing, let us know by saying pass. Then press star one to mute your phone. In order to have a nice quiet meeting, everyone's phone except the speakers should be muted. Okay, so today we're gonna resume our study in the big book on page 21, the second paragraph. And I will ask Elaine T to kindly Begin reading. 
Hi, Janice. Thank you. I'm Elaine T., recovered compulsive overeater in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Here is the fellow who has been puzzling you, especially in his lack of control. He does absurd, incredible, tragic things while drinking. He is a real Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. He is seldom mildly intoxicated. He is always more or less insanely drunk. His disposition while drinking resembles his normal nature, but litter. little. <laughs> he may be one of the finest fellows in the world, yet let him drink for a day, and he frequently becomes disgustingly, even dangerously, antisocial. He has a positive genius for getting tight at exactly the wrong moment, particularly when something important decision must be made or an engagement kept. He is often perfectly sensible and well-balanced concerning everything except liquor. But in that respect, he is incredibly dishonest and selfish. He often possesses special abilities, skills, and aptitudes and has a promising career ahead of him. He uses his gifts to build up a bright outlook for his family and himself, and then he pulls the structure down on his head by a senseless series of sprees. He is the fellow who goes to bed so intoxicated he ought to sleep round the clock. Yet, early the next morning, he searches madly for the bottle he misplaced the night before. If he can afford it, he may have liquor concealed all over his house to be certain no one gets his entire supply away from him to throw down the waste pipe. As matters grow worse, he begins to use a combination of high-powered sedative and liquor to quiet his nerves so he can go to work. Then comes the day when he simply cannot make it and gets drunk all over again. Perhaps he goes to a doctor who gives him morphine or some sedative with which to taper off. Then he begins to appear at hospitals and sanitariums. This is by no means a comprehensive picture of the true alcoholic, as our behavior patterns vary. But this description should identify him roughly. Wow, what a powerful couple of pages. Um, I um, was so much a compulsive overeater until I got into this program at the age of 40 that I was always more or less insanely drunk. Um, I ate continually and pretty much anything I wanted because I learned at a very early age, 10, 11, something like that, that I couldn't diet. And so I just gave up the thought of trying. Um, so while it might not show quite so quickly that I was insanely drunk, my disposition was clearly antisocial, um, and I, while I possessed special abilities and aptitudes and had a promising career, um, I could manage to pull um, the whole house down on us when um, my behavior became the issue. Actually, it was my behavior that brought me into the program, not a desire to be thin, although I had that desire. I'd given it up so many years ago that it didn't seem to matter anymore. Um, I also hid food and um, tried different things to be less insane. Um, so I can clearly identify in. Um, what happened for me was that I was um, introduced to this program. It was so easy to identify in. Um, I realized I was a compulsive overeater in 1993. 
um, managed to get some recovery, but um, I don't think I got it. So I, I ended up going out in about 1998. Um, actually, I stayed in the rooms. I didn't really go out, but I picked up my substance again and um, tried all kinds of different things. What I know today is that working the program is the answer. It keeps me relatively sane. I won't say that I'm always sane, <laughs> um, but it, it keeps me relatively sane, and it keeps me aware that I am a true compulsive overeater and um, willing, which is a word that I uh, jokingly used to refer to as four-lettered um, because I really didn't have the willingness to work hard. Um, I did so much work at my job, and I felt that requirement that I didn't want to do any other work. Um, and finally, I realized that I wasn't going to have a job, um, and my family life had been crumbling, and that there wasn't really going to be anything left if I didn't get sanity. And so I became willing. And um, this program saved my life. I believe that it has improved the lives of my family. Um, my children seem relatively healthy today, and I am so grateful for it. And I live happy and joyous and free, only one day at a time, as I work this program. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Elaine T. Okay, we're going to be open for discussion. So if you would say your first name and last initial, and uh, we'll get going. Gina S. John K. All Sylvia right. I, F. Okay, I hear Reggie Reggie Hold on, because I'm going to. I'm writing names. Gina, what was your first initial? F, as in Frank. Got it. Gina F. And then I heard John K. And then who did I hear? Sylvia Marlene H. Yeah. I heard Sylvia. Sylvia K. And then I heard Marlene H. Is that correct? Arlene H. Okay, Arlene, I'm sorry, Arlene H. And one more for now. Reggie. Donna W. All right, we'll take you, uh, Donna, after Reggie and the next group, okay? So we'll start off on page, we're, we're commenting on page 21, the second paragraph, and page 22, the first paragraph. Gina F., please go ahead. Hi, good morning, everybody. This is Gina F., recovered in Connecticut, and... um you know, it's true how they write that um, this is not a comprehensive picture of the alcoholic for our behavior patterns vary. Um, so what I identified with, with was um, the fact that uh, in terms of food, I was insanely dishonest and selfish. Um, you know, when I wanted my food, I would lie, I would steal, I would hide it around the house. Um, I would take it from coworkers, from my kids, from uh, the money that should have gone to my family. Um, when I needed my fix, I would go to any lengths to get it, um, no matter how dishonest and selfish I had to be. Um, and not even in secret, uh, you know, it says we would be dangerously antisocial and Antisocial doesn't always mean uh, hiding in the house and isolating. Um, it also means just doing things that are contrary to healthy functioning and relationships. And so I would use people for food. I had binge buddies, and I would call them up to get together, um, not out of an honest desire to 
connect with them, but to have someone that I could be openly with, uh, just the same way that uh, Bill in his story said that he had no concern for Ebby. He was just excited that he could drink openly with Ebby. Um, so, you know, despite seeming healthy functioning in other areas of my life, which I've come to understand was not healthy functioning, I was uh, dangerously and, and sickly antisocial, selfish, and dishonest uh, in many areas of my life um, because I was an active addict. So the beauty of living in recovery is being able to have integrity in all areas of my life, to actually live those principles that I had so desperately wanted to live for many years but had no power on my own to live. Um, so through the power greater than myself, um, who I had never knew that I needed, but through desperation and the depths of despair that this program brought me to, I was able to get contact with that higher power and uh, slowly be changed to live a better, freer, more selfless and connected life. Um, and with that, I'll pass. Thank you. And thank you so much, um, Gina F. Okay, John Kay, it's your turn. Hi, thanks, Janice. This is John Karen, Recovered Compulsive Overeater in Los Angeles. First of all, I have to apologize. I, was, I think it was supposed to be on Team Tuesday, and I'm sitting here, and the, the clock just jumped from a quarter of to uh, seven on the nose, and I apologize if I uh, wasn't here for that. Um, you know, this is an important, important section of the book, you know, and, and it, it references back to yesterday's paragraph about the description of the real alcoholic and that phrase, which I just love about... Uh, at some stage of his career, he be, he begins to lose all control, you know, and that's the critical line in terms of the disease, you know, and it's, you know, the great thing is it's been proven by science now, you know, that there's this enzyme that burns out in the uh, uh, alcoholic, and, and also they find out more and more about uh, food and the things that had caused you know, that in, in us. And, and it doesn't help me with the solution of my problem, but it helps reinforce what thankfully, you know, Dr. Silkworth figured out years ago, we have an allergy of the body. And it also speaks about the progression, progressive nature of the disease. You know, over time we get worse, never better. Um, when it talks about Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, I, you know, I hear that at meetings of all my different programs and, and, you know, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde was an allegory about addiction. And, and so, of course, you know, that makes sense. And where it talks about, you know, being perfectly sensible and well-balanced concerning everything except our addiction, well, that's, to me, the textbook example of the insanity of this disease. Most OA people I know, you know, are highly functioning, above average in intelligence, yet, you know, all this is of no use to us when we're dealing with the disease, you know, and the obsession of the mind in particular. Why? Because I think in this one specific area, we are insane. And not crazy insane, but I love the definition of insanity I heard once that fits my disease perfectly, where it says, it is a state of mind which prevents normal perception. And it's like, bingo, that hit me. That's it. I've got this great brain. It works so well in all these other areas of my life. But why not here? Well, because... The main thing my great brain does for me is to help me make, you know, any number of decisions every day. But when it comes to my disease, that decision maker is of no use to me because it's getting faulty data. And that's what my disease does. It, it's constantly feeding me corrupt data, which means I make 
bad decisions about my food and my eating over and over and over. Well, I used to. I don't anymore. And and the phrase dangerously antisocial, I just love that. And that was definitely me with the food. You know, more than when I you know, was younger and with the alcohol. But with the food, I mean, it's like come home from work, draw the blinds, unpack the food, turn on the TV or the Internet, and leave me alone. You know, turn the ringer off on the phone. You know, there's, it, there's a fast food chain out here in L.A. that has a, a slogan, don't bother me, I'm eating. Boy, I just always crack up when I hear that because that was my mantra, don't bother me. And then finally, that this um, other phrase where it talks about getting tight at exactly the wrong moment. Well, of course, uh, you know, whatever that wrong moment was, was probably some important thing going on and was very critical, which probably meant anxiety coming up in the person. And what's an addict do at that point? Well, we're all keyed up. We we turn to the food or the foods and the drugs. And of course, it's going to be the wrong moment. And anyway, all of this is, it, it helps me reinforce that, wow, I have a disease. It has an allergy of the body. It has an obsession of the mind. And not all of the willpower in the world is going to help me. I need to have a program. I need to have the steps. And I need to have a higher power I can lean on to help me with all of that. Anyway, with that, I pass. And thank you, John K. Okay, I believe it's Sylvia F. Okay, <laughs> Sylvia. Good morning, Janice, and good morning, visionaries. This is Sylvia F. Recovered um, in Northern California, but sounding a lot like an old country western singer mm-hmm. today. Um, and let me put on the, top, the timer. So there's a couple of passages here that I really like, and <clears throat> one of the things you know, that, that this book is doing is, is trying to get me to identify in. And I've heard a lot of people when they first got the book, they said, you know, but I'm not an alcoholic and I can't really relate. And when I picked up this book, it was a page turner. I was popping up on every page and it was so exciting to me to have it explained or to be able to identify in because I didn't feel I didn't feel quite, I was still crazy, but I didn't feel so quite as isolated crazy that there were other people here who had what I had. And this one line, he's often perfectly sensible and well-balanced concerning everything except liquor. But in that respect, he's incredibly dishonest and selfish. If you looked at my life from the outside, I was successful. I had a professional career. I had, you know, this nice family. We owned a house in California. You know, we, you know, we, all the accoutrements, good marriage. And, um, but, you know, you could look at me physically and go, what's going on with her? Because I was either, you know, morbidly obese or, or low. But also I was just nuts. I was nuts at work and nuts in my family. So when I read this line, it was like, yes, the rest of my life is fine. What the heck is going on? And then I loved the line. I could so identify in where it says, he's a fellow who goes to bed so intoxicated he ought to sleep the clock around yet early the next Morning, he searches madly for the bottle he misplaced the night before. He may have liquor concealed all over his house to be certain no one gets his entire supply away from him. Or for me, you know, my kids or my husband eat, eat the stuff. But uh, I, we were taking off uh, on a trip, an adventure of a lifetime. We had a big sailboat, and we were leaving San Diego, and we were leaving to go to Salem, Mexico. And, um, and I had made the decision I, it was before our program. I had made the decision that I was not going to take any sugar and junk food 
and, you know, I was going to go out on this adventure for the lifetime, and I was going to, um, you know, I was going to get, you know, uh, uh, done with this. And the, like the morning that before we left, I was racing around to all the mini marts and all the stores and buying all the junk food and literally stowing those packages of, of, of uh, junk food all over the boat because I didn't want anyone to see how much I was bringing along. And I wanted to know that I had something in every cabin. And so when I read this, I'm like, boy, if I'm not an alcoholic, I don't know who is. That's exactly what I did. I just did it with food. And just to um, close, uh, just, uh, you know, I say I'm a recovered compulsive overeater, and, um, and I am. Uh, and I have neutrality in my food. But I'm going to go to the doctor this morning. I realized that I need to go back into the doctor. And um, I'm very sick. My first thought, because I'm a crazy person, is what am I going to wear because they're going to weigh me? I just want you to be able to identify him with me, too. I'm crazy. Pass. Well, thank you so much, Sylvia. Thank you. And we have Arlene H. Arlene, it's your turn. Hi, this is Arlene H., a compulsive overeater from Vermont. Go ahead. Um, In today's reading, I uh, really identified greatly with the dishonest and selfish um, well-balanced in almost everything else but my food and um, incredibly dishonest and selfish. I um, had been coming to OA for quite a, not a while, for a short time since May of 2017, and I was doing pretty well. Lost a couple of... Um, a couple of sizes, I was not weighing myself. It wasn't about the weighing and measure. You know, it was about um, it was about connection with God and making my meetings and all of that. And I noticed that I had um, been dishonest with myself and with my husband in recent past, maybe two days ago, and... And that was the first indication that I was falling. So um, I had a bright outlook for myself and my family. I was looking good. I was in my jeans again, and I was feeling good. I was close to God. And then all of a sudden, my powerlessness shows itself like a really mean monster of a creature. It just um, it just took me down last night, and it, I guess my friend Mary B. from Arizona asked me what led up to it, and I didn't know. And well, basically, plenty of things led up to it, and um, I resembled myself, but little. It was not my normal nature. I was hiding stuff as um, as the addict does, you know, as the alcoholic does. I started hiding stuff maybe two days ago, and last night it hurt me. It hurt me badly. 
I even lied to my husband saying I was going out to a face-to-face meeting and instead I connected with that meeting over the telephone. And when I connected with the meeting, I had all sense of comparison, not identification, and I found myself to be less than everyone who was sharing, and I found... Um, I found myself um, not worthy and I picked up and I feel awful today and mostly I'm starting again today is day one of my abstinence (sighs) and it is time Eileen I'm sorry No, that's quite all right. I am so happy to have revealed this to you and my fellows. Thank you. And thank you, Arlene, for your honesty. Yes, okay. Reggie O, it's your turn. Hey, thank you, Janice. And this is Reggie O, gratefully recovered in the Los Angeles area. And just let me, you have a timer there, so. I I do. Thank you. (laughs) Okay. at some point uh, of his drinking career, he begins to lose all control. And, uh, you know, I, there, there was this point, I, it was a long time before I think I had lost control of my eating that I realized that I could no longer choose to go on a diet uh, when I wanted to. I would just, you know, wake up one morning and it would be time to do that and I could do it for a period of time. Uh, but I, it was a, it's been, it was a long time uh, coming that I really had no choice in going on a diet. Uh, but you know, when I before I had this, um, before I came to realize that I was a real compulsive eater, I yet still had a problem with the with the uh, identifying in, you know. And I I remember once uh, that I was at a five day uh, inpatient treatment uh, program, and. I went because I had lost all control of my eating. It was affecting every area of my life. And I was sitting there talking to the two people who were leading the group that day. And I, I was so good at not identifying in and so good at talking a good story that one of them looked at me and said, well, maybe you're not a real compulsive overeater. And, uh, and there, there were two parts of me that came up. One of the, one of the parts was, Oh wow! Yeah, she she I I I have her fooled, and the other was why can't she see through me? You know why can't she see into me? Which was interesting, which was a, a you know an experience that I'd had <clears throat> for a lot of my life. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Before I ever read the Big Book, I had experiences of that, and I thought I thought to myself, Gosh, my my life, my daily life is like a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and it wasn't always when I was eating and not eating, <clears throat> but it was the way that my thinking had become in my perceptions, you know, of life as John Kay gave that, that uh, definition before, you know, uh, that my, I, my state of mind prevents normal perception. So I had this Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde thing all the time. Uh, and, you know, it, this really, I used to think I, I've had friends who were, you know, comp- way overweight, uh, friends in program, and they just had these outrageously successful careers that they could carry through. <clears throat> 
And mine, my, my career pattern followed my eating pattern, which was I would have, you know, I would have great success and possibilities and opportunities, you know, <clears throat> and then I would uh, bring it down on my head or I would leave and, and do something else. So I never was able to build throughout, you know, my, my professional life. It was this period of successes, like it would be periods of abstinence and periods of compulsive eating. And I'll tell you, um, I am so grateful to have learned, I think for the first time coming into vision, you know, uh, about a year and a half ago. Thank you. I heard that. Uh, okay. And that is, this is a way of life. I am a real compulsive eater and I need and want and have a deep desire to do this and live this way every day because that is the only way, <laughs> the only way. So thanks for letting me share. Thank you so much, Reggie. Oh, okay. If you just joined us, I just a reminder where we are. We're on page 21. We're on paragraph two that begins with here's the fellow. And then we end on page 22 at the end of paragraph one. Um, was there a Donna that would like to speak next? Yes, Donna W. here. Okay, Donna. Who else would like to comment? Anna B. Anna B. All right. Charles A. B. Charles H. I heard. And somebody else? Ori B. Ori B. Ori B. Okay. One more. Grace R. Grace R. Great group. Okay. Grace R. Donna W. It's your turn. Thank you so much, Donna W. Gratefully recovered and abstinent in Palo Alto, California today. And um, just so grateful to be on the line. And um, so here's a fellow who has been puzzling you, and he's a real Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And I want to talk about how, um, you know, from, from the way my disease shows up is I may not be Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde to you. I might be friendly and pleasant. But when I start eating, I am so mean to myself. I, I, I treat myself you know, I, I turn it into a moral issue, and um, I call myself horrible names. And so I'm, I'm that real Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde to myself when I eat. I, I really turn that um, that that battle inward um, rather than outward. And um, and then the part about um, being dangerously antisocial. What I notice is, um, you know, I might be at a party, I might be at an event, I might be out and about, but um, once I eat the food, it's like a veil drops down and, and I'm no longer there. I might still be smiling. I might still be, um, you know, with you, but it's like, it's like the, the mist, <laughs> the mist of Avalon have arrived and I'm like in a different place and I'm just having to dance with the food and it's all I can think about for the rest of the time. I'm just scheming and planning. And, um, and, you know, a friend of mine was, uh, went to some, um, some other uh, 12 step programs and she was telling me, gosh, you know, they'll lie and they'll cheat and they'll steal for their substance. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I do that. I, I do that. I will lie. I will cheat. I will steal. I will sneak. And I was, you know, I, I also think part of the, you know, my childhood, there was a lot of sneaking in the house for um, food. And I think part of the addiction is also to the adrenaline that comes up from, oh, I'm sneaking and I got it. I got my stuff. And there's a whole kind of internal chemical uh, thing going on that I'm addicted to that whole the whole show there so um, I'm grateful to to learn that I can put the food down today that I get to feel my feelings I'm still on, um, having some challenges with a friend 
So I'm feeling sad and um, frightened, which I get to do my 10th step and I get to, um, you know, feel my feelings today, which is hard. Um, and uh, just show up and just try to do this one day at a time. And uh, you guys help me remember I'm not alone and I have a higher power. So thanks a lot for listening. And thank you. Yeah, thanks, Donna W. And just a gentle reminder, if you're not um, muted, just kindly just press star one. If you're Anna Anna B, please go ahead, Anna. Hi, this is Tana B with a T. Oh, oh, okay, Tana. Hi, this is Tana B, um, and compulsive overeater from Montana. Um, and this is my first time sharing on the line, and um, I really identified in with this. I first came to OA when I was 20, and um, I'm. This is there's so many things in this paragraph that I identify with, especially the dishonesty and the absurd, incredibly tragic things I did while overeating, and. The thing that I that gives me a lot of hope is, although it does make me dangerously antisocial, and the mental obsession I can be like was shared before. I can be around so many people and amongst friends, but my mental obsession has always come food first, and that has made keeping a depth in relationships nearly impossible, and has kept me dangerously isolated in the disease, and um, it's really important to identify in for me because I've never in my life been overweight. Um, I've been an overeater that comes tied with bulimia, and I went to my first um, asylum when I was 20 and um, have been in and out nine times since then throughout my life, and I never identified as overeater because I was never overweight, but one of the things I'm working on now is once you take away that insidious desire, what do you have, what do I have left? And one of the things I'm working on are what other mood-altering activities can I do to replace them? And that's where I'm focusing on the special abilities, skills, and aptitudes that we do. So many of us have these amazing things in us and focusing on those and using those things that are God-given gifts to really elevate me as a person and me and my relationships um, is one of the things that this program has really let me see and believe in. And I couldn't have done that without listening to all of you and identifying with other women and other men on this line that have this incredibly debilitating and I'm so, so grateful not to be alone. And I'm so grateful for this line. And that's all I have. Thank you. I'll pass. Thank you, Janice. And who's next? Janice, are you there? Yeah, I just said that gentleman is next, Charles H. Can you hear me? Thank you, Janice. You can go, Charles. All right, yeah. I, I developed some phone etiquette over the years. Very good. <laughs> <laughs> Charles H., a recovered compulsive overeater. 
I used to be a Jekyll and Hyde. Speaking of phone etiquette, I had none. Savage beast. Just I know how to share first all that good stuff, well, all that bad stuff. Um, and, and and I was a real Jekyll and Hyde at that point. I was a real Jekyll and Hyde when every day when I'm not trying to improve my conscious contact with the God of my understanding. I don't understand God, but I stand under God. Um, I was a real Jekyll and Hyde when I was questioning this program. And speaking of questions, there's so many questions in this text, and there's a solution. And throughout the whole big book, and Bill is so ingenious because he answers those questions in the next couple of paragraphs or the paragraph right behind it. And we're going to get, in a couple of days, we're going to get to why does he behave like that, or maybe we did get to know, page 22, why does he behave like that? If one drink causes another debacle, why did he take that drink? We can't solve the riddle. But one thing I can tell you, and I'm telling you this real, if I could still smoke crack today and get away with it, I would. If I could smoke crack and be a functional crackhead, I would. I couldn't do it. And I couldn't um, be a functional person indulging in whatever substance it is. And don't let nobody fool you. This big book is full of drugs, <laughs> full of drugs. Sugar is a drug. But, um, you know, I got cornered. I got desperate. And that's why I work these steps every single day like my hair is on fire. And I need to improve my conscious contact. You know, difficult times is going to come. Difficult people all I got to do is look in the mirror. I'm a difficult person. And once I accept this stuff, there's hope for even a person like me. There's hope for anybody on this line. And with that, I pass. Thanks. Thank you, Charles. Still listening for more. Okay, Ori B., it's your turn. Yeah, this is Ori B. from Los Angeles. Can I be heard? You can. So, uh... The the line that got me this morning was um, he uses his gifts to build up a bright outlook for his family and, and himself and then pulls the structure down on his head by a senseless series of sprees. And, um, yeah, that, that line, I, I'm, I'm really hurting from that right now. I could just feel the remorse from the years that I've spent in relapse and the years that I've lost to my sprees and just, you know, being in, in the danger. And, you know, like it, it, it hurts real bad. It hurts to, you know, reflect on how my life has been altered. My decisions have been altered by my addiction. And, you know, like with me, I'm like Osama bin Laden in my addiction. I go into a bunker. I can't show up for life at all. Like I am not functioning. I'm not a functioning compulsive overeater, uh, overeater by any means. I retreat into a cave and I disappear off the radar. And um, just having that 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 behavior, it it, it, re- it wreaks havoc on dreams and aspirations. And uh, yeah, it just it just hurts to kind of reflect upon that. And in um, you know, I, like I didn't go to college right after high school um, because I, I couldn't fit in the seats at the school. I didn't go to prom. I didn't do you know I didn't do a lot of life because of this addiction. And 
it's hard facing that. And kind of have to just turn that over and trust to God and have faith that there is still a plan for me. I think I'm in there. I just I just I just needed to share that. Um, thank you. Well, thank you so much for your share, R.E.B. Okay, we have about five more minutes. Maybe we can take two at two and a half minutes. Who would like to share on these pages? Melanie C. Melanie. And Cynthia Y. Thank you. Melanie, it's your turn. Hey, good morning, everyone. My name is Melanie C. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. Good morning again, Janice. I'm focusing on... um, the line that says he is seldom mildly intoxicated. He is always more or less insanely drunk. And what just occurred to me is that throughout my time using as an addict, um, I was more or less insanely drunk. I couldn't see, I couldn't feel, I couldn't do anything. And that's all anybody ever saw of me. I have been a compulsive overeater from what I can tell since I was about two years old. And so whatever was developing throughout this time, the, the face of that, was an addict, was a, was a drunk, more or less insanely so. And they didn't know how to relate to me because I was not predictable in any way, shape, or form. But that's how they came to know me. This is who I was. So then when I wasn't using the food during those times where I would with it, you know, go on one of those sensational, sensational food plans on Monday morning and you take away my binge foods from me, then all hell broke loose. And then people saw what it was I was trying to shove down, push down with that particular food. And it just got worse and worse and worse over time. The Jekyll and Hyde thing, I don't know which one is first and which one came best. And I don't know when it would appear or not appear. But no one around me knew who and what I was. They didn't know what to do with me. They could see times when I would, would show such promise. I don't know if you heard this at all but and I thought they were just placating me in the first place but I would hear these things like you know she would just apply herself she has so much going for her my sister would tell me all the time you don't realize what kind of gifts you have Melanie you're so this and that well I thought she was just being a sister so when I'm reading this I'm thinking maybe there was some of that in me that people would see from time to time but the evidence of the records all around me shows what I ended up doing with that. And what is the answer Charles was talking about? I, I don't know. How come? Let's just say that it's this disease and follow these steps and exactly the way they're outlined and see what happens, Melanie. They have what you want. She's got what you want. Why don't you do just exactly what she did to get it without the yes, buts, or how come this, and maybe I'll go check that, and perhaps I'll get back to you later. How about let's just do exactly what she did. And you know what? That's the answer. It happened for me. It happened for a person like me. All this time, I couldn't figure these things out. Something shifted. Something switched. I'm not the same person that I was. I am functioning under every single condition that shocks me. I feel like I'm a person on the, on the sidelines watching something unfold that just keeps my jaw constantly dropping as long as I follow the, these um, suggestions that somebody else has, has already paved the road on. I just have to do what they have to do. I, you know, stop, try to stop me from being enthusiastic about something like Time. this that's given yeah. me my life back. Thanks, Janice. Yeah, thank you so much. I hope that uh, Grace R. did not run away. I think I took her name, but I didn't call on her. Grace, are you still available? Ooh, 
She's probably saying the resentment prayer. All right. I'm here. This is Grace oh, R. Please go ahead Hi. if you'd like to. Yeah, for a couple of minutes, okay? Uh, yeah, thank you so much. Mm-hmm. No, You're that's welcome. good. I kind of wondered, but but then it was okay. <laughs> good. Um, I, I can so relate to these pages of the big book, and I'm so grateful for this passage. Uh, the The things that jump out for me are dangerously antisocial. I would become so isolated when I was in the food and and not only antisocial or isolated but uh mean not only to myself but to other people around me blameful hurtful angry and um particularly if sugar was in the picture so um so I could really relate to that I also can see I I uh, have been on a different spiritual path for the last 25 years and so I feel like so much of my life is turned over to the will of God except for I held back around the food because this work that I do didn't take care of that aspect of my life so so I'm very grateful that I have found this program and that this area of my life is now getting addressed as well as so many areas that um, that being in the food kept me from addressing. So anyway, thank you so much for letting me share and I just love this meeting. And with that, I'll pass. And thank you all. And thank you especially, Grace, for your understanding I want to thank everyone who shared and is on Team Tuesday, Carol H., Reggie O., Elaine T., Cynthia Y., Melanie C. And now I'm going to ask Cynthia Y. if she will now read from the big book on page 164, followed by the serenity prayer. So will will Cynthia please read? This Our book is meant to be suggestive only. Hi, good morning. This is Cynthia Y, a grateful recovering overeater in Dayton, Ohio. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. Only if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right, and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you 